and welcome to Recovery 360, the podcast dedicated to exploring the pathways to treatment and recovery, brought to you by Recovery Centers of America. I'm Lorraine Ballard-Morrill, Director of News and Community Affairs for iHeartMedia Philadelphia, and I am joined by the wonderful Tony Luke Jr. Tony, good <laughs> Hello, to see you Lorraine. again. <laughs> again and again, I love it. Well, we are thrilled to be your guide on this journey to better understanding the world of healing and the many ways individuals can find their way to recovery. In each episode, we'll sit down with experts, survivors, and advocates in the field of treatment and recovery. We'll unravel the complexities of addiction, mental health, and physical wellness while shedding light on the diverse range of therapies, interventions, and approaches available. In today's episode, we'll talk about medication-assisted treatment. Medication-assisted treatment, or MAT, MAT is a highly effective approach to treating substance use disorders. MAT combines FDA-approved medications with counseling and behavioral therapies to address addictions, physical and psychological aspects. Well, we're going to do a deep dive into MAT. And joining us are Dr. Peter Vernick, who serves as Vice President of Mental Health Services, and Ashley Gardner, VP of Nursing at Recovering Centers of America. It is so wonderful to have you here today for this podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah, well, Dr. Ashley Gardner, let's talk about MAT. What is MAT and what's the goal? So MAT, uh, medication-assisted treatment, is the use of medications to help support recovery. And so we have several FDA-approved medications for both opioid use disorder and alcohol use disorder. And so the purpose of these medications is really to assist people in their long-term recovery um, by reducing cravings, um, reducing overdose and death, as well as, you know, several other benefits. You know, I have this image. Not too far from where I live is a methadone clinic. Mm -hmm. And I think for years and years, that's basically what was used in order to address medically Mm -hmm. assisted treatment, methadone. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how MAT and the industry has evolved. Dr. Vernick? So as you said, for a long time, uh, sort of methadone was one of the only games in town. And absolutely, methadone is still effective. Many people utilize methadone uh, as a part of their treatment program. But there are so many different medications that are available now, as uh, Dr. Gardner talked about, that can be incorporated with all of the other elements of treatment. So this is the recognition of the fact that, as we've talked about so often on this show, substance use disorder is not just an emotional issue. It's not just a family issue. It's not just a physiological issue. It's all of the above. And so a comprehensive plan of treatment that brings all of those pieces together for the patient and that's tailored to their needs is really going to be the the best option. And so with new medications that are available and new ways of receiving medications, this really enables more people to take advantage of medication-assisted treatment. I know Dr. Gardner can talk about some of the, the more details of the different options that are available, but it's just it's so important how that integrates into uh, to the work that uh, that we do in the field. Well, that leads into, in previous episodes of our podcast, we talked about all the different types of treatment for substance use disorder. Can we go back briefly and touch on how MAT supports these other treatment options? MAT is meant to be a one form of treatment, right? And so we look at, at addiction, you know, as a, a chronic brain disease. And so it's like every other chronic disease. So I like it, liken it to diabetes, right? And so for some people, they can manage diabetes with diet and exercise. 
and other people, they need to take maybe an oral medication like metformin or something. And then others maybe need insulin. And so if we look at that in the, in the realm of addiction, some people benefit from medications and certain medications maybe might be beneficial for one person over another, but some also benefit from outpatient therapy, whether it be our partial hospitalization program or intensive outpatient program or generalized outpatient therapy, as well as working with a psychiatrist, perhaps working with a peer support recovery specialist. And so it's really this whole gamut of leveraging these different treatment modalities for what each individual person would benefit from. I wonder if we also can talk more specifically about the different types of MAT and what they actually do. Because I know that in my limited understanding of MAT as it relates to methadone, my perception of it was that people took methadone to stop the craving. Can you describe what the different medications are and what do they actually do? Sure, absolutely. So when we think about methadone, so that's a medication that's used for opiate use disorder. So we have three FDA-approved medications for opiate use disorder, one of them being methadone, um, the other being buprenorphine and its various products, and the last one being naltrexone, which comes in a long-acting um, injectable called Vivitrol. So when we think about opiate use disorder, so opiate, you know, work on the opiate receptors in the brain. So when somebody takes an opiate, whether it be a prescribed opiate or, you know, something off the street like heroin and fentanyl, that activates that receptor. And so methadone works in that it's also a what we call an agonist. So it it activates that receptor. So what happens with using methadone is that it binds to that receptor. And so it does reduce the cravings and helps the the person kind of have a steady state but without the abuse of other other opiates. So the research is strongest for methadone because methadone has been around the longest. And so there's lots of evidence that shows that it reduces overdose deaths. It reduces all-cause mortality. It increases retention and treatment, super important for our patient population, as well as it reduces several of the other associated diseases such as HIV, hepatitis, and so there's a lot of benefits for that. For buprenorphine, which comes in both a sublingual format that somebody would take every day, as well as now some long-acting injectables, which are great that they would get in their medical provider's offices, it's what we call a partial agonist and partial antagonist. So basically what that means is it binds to that opioid receptor, just like the methadone does or the other opiates, but it has a ceiling effect. So once it gets to a certain level, it no more amount is going to really have any effect. So it doesn't give that same kind of high that people experience when they're abusing opiates, but it does give them that steady state. And so it reduces cravings and, you know, reduces the, the risk of relapse through that. Now, Trexone now is a partial antagonist. And so what that means is it binds to the receptor, but it blocks it, basically, so that no other opiate, if somebody were to take it, could bind to the receptor. So basically, if someone used it while they were on the naltrexone, then they wouldn't feel anything. These are all important medications, and so they work a little bit different, and there's pros and cons to each of them. But the main thing that they do is help reduce the cravings and help prevent relapse on the drugs of abuse. You partially hit it. I was just curious, is MAT a long-term treatment, or is it time-limited? So, again, it's very individualized. So my recommendation for people is always to recommend to be on it for at least a year. 
because it takes a lot of time. People didn't get to this point overnight, right? They didn't use once and now they're in full-blown addiction. So usually it's many years before they're coming and, and getting help and, and seeing us. And so so it takes time to kind of undo some of the, the changes that happen in the brain. And for the people to develop better coping skills and to just kind of work through some of the underlying causes. And so the recommendation is that people going on it stay on it for a year. However, it really is individualized. So there's lots of people that stay on these medications indefinitely. And and that's okay if that's what they need and that's what's helpful for them. But some people decide that they want to get off of them at some point. And so, so really it's a tailored approach to each individual. Yeah, Dr. Vernig, I would imagine that you can't really have MAT without it being surrounded by other types of treatments, whether it's behavioral, whether it's inpatient or outpatient. You can't just give somebody a drug and just say, you're fine now, go off and do your life, right? It's, it really needs to be combined with other types of treatment in order to truly be helpful because really when you're talking about being on a medication in which you have to consistently be on that medication, you have to want to be on that medication, right? You have Mm -hmm. to choose, you have to make that choice. Exactly. So MAT is most often used in combination with other approaches, things that we've talked about before, like 12-step approach or cognitive behavior therapy or dialectical behavior therapy or other treatment modalities to really address the whole person. Because that's, that's I think, something that we've come back to so many times here is the fact that it's not just one thing. There is the the family effect. There could be underlying mental health uh, concerns, trauma, etc. So all of that needs to be addressed together. Take, for example cravings, uh, something that uh, Dr. Gardner talked about that is a really important part of recovery from a substance. So when those cravings occur, we're going to teach people ways of coping with them. We're going to teach them active skills that they can practice and that they can use in the moment when they're having that craving. They may have things like art and music involved. They may have their family included. So how can the family support them at that point in time? But what if also biologically we could bring that craving down or make that less serious, make it easier for them to manage, and that's what the medication in that specific scenario is doing for them. So it's all working together. It has a synergistic effect, which is why you know many of the treatment plans that you'll see, many people in recovery, they have different different pieces. And as we've talked about also, those aren't going to look the same for one, one person to the next because people are different, circumstances are different, and uh, although there's a lot of commonalities in the disease of addiction, the disease can be different from person to person. To touch on what Dr. Ashley said, uh, earlier, there's pros and cons to both, and it goes back to what you know what I had said in a previous podcast that addiction shouldn't be looked at as a chronic disease. See, diabetes is a chronic disease. Cancer is a chronic disease. So people that have to be heart is a chronic disease. So people take medication for the rest of their life because there is there's an an actual physical dependency that the body is not creating whatever the body needs insulin or when it, so it needs it. So again, she's a hundred percent right. There's the positive of getting rid of the craving, getting rid of the need to do the opioid. But then the massive negative to that is to want someone to be on methadone for the rest of their life goes back to being a crutch again. Okay. It's like it needs to be used as one of the tools that you use, because we, we said this earlier, and Dr. Vernick has been in on every podcast, so 
it's nothing new to what, what I had said to him, is that sobriety, as important as it is, is not as important as the mental health aspect in what's going on. And the reason that I, I support MAT is because it allows that person the breathing room mm. to to address the trauma and the mental health issues. I never was a fan of, of what we talked in a previous episode of going cold turkey and sticking someone in a room, you know, and they get sick. And it's like, okay, well, now physically, physically, you're not dependent upon the drug. Go do what you got to go do and you be willpower and call. No, that's why when people go, well, I'm very much against, well, for me personally, I'm not against anything that gives the ability for someone to not concentrate on the physical demands of active addiction where they can put themselves in a place where they can be open to discussing why you're self-medicating. Why do you need this to, to take the pain away? What is the pain? And I think that's where MAT really shines for me. But again, the downside is what you don't want is MAT to be the crotch of you spending another 30 years on methadone. To me, that... It, it doesn't address the issue. Right. You want to get down to the reasons why people are self-medicating, which brings me to a question which I, I think has always been in the back of my head, and that is discussing substance use disorder as a physical condition. We often talk about you should have a strength of character to stop. You've got it within you. You can do it. It's not that simple because we're talking about brain chemistry. Can you break it down more in terms of talking about substance use disorder is a disorder? There's a physical component to it because how does one person try heroin and then that's it? They walk away. You have another person, they try it and suddenly they see God and this becomes a craving that they can't step away from. Well, you make a good point. So there is absolutely a genetic component with the disease of addiction. And so there's been studies out where they show that people that have a, you know, a parent or, or a direct relative that has struggled with addiction, that they're more likely to struggle with addiction. So that's one way we know that it's a physical disease, not just a mental shortcoming, right? Another thing that they found is that you can actually see the changes on brain scans. You can see the, you know, with somebody that's that's using versus somebody that's never used versus somebody that's been in recovery for a long time, you can see that there's actually changes. Another thing that's important that I have learned is that when they do a EEG, which is kind of looking at the signals in your brain, so what they have found is that they, they can actually see somebody that's predisposed to addiction based on some of those brain waves. So they have lower delta waves, which basically means that they don't have the warning signals. So somebody that, you know, let's just say speeding, right? And so so somebody that, that had the regular might start to get worried when they're at 100 miles an hour or 120. But the person that, that struggles with addiction, they don't worry, right? So because they have decrease in those those delta waves. And so there's a lot of different scientific evidence to point to there is something physically going on that's contributing to somebody struggling with a disease of addiction. I could make this argument if I wanted to. I could just make the argument. 
And I and I know that there's actual medical data proof that backs everything that you just said. And and I'm not taking away from any of that. But being around that, being around a parent, now not me, being around a parent who is suffering from addiction. You can make the point that it can be handed down genetically, but I could also make an argument that watching the behavior of that parent contributes to the factor of the way they handle issues gets passed along to the child because I have three children. One fell in to that, self-medicated to to that, and died. Two did not. So there's more outside. I, I believe that the environmental aspect of it as well plays a key component. You are right. I have a friend of mine who can't not drive 120 miles an hour in rush hour traffic while I'm sitting on the chair and my, my knuckles are white. I'm like, do you not see that this car? He's like, this is great. So I, so I get it. Yeah. Like, I, I do get it, but I can also make an argument. We look up to our parents. We look up to people as children of authority, and we want to emulate them, and we learn how to cope with things by the way we see our environment copes with those things. So as yes, I agree that it is definitely, there is definitely a genetic issue there, but I I don't want to discount the fact that the way someone who is an active addiction is behaving in front of their children or their loved one does absolutely contribute to the way that child perceives the way the world is and how to react to that. Absolutely. I think you, the other point of that is, you know, in cases of domestic violence, you often see that those patterns of domestic violence are repeated through generations because that's what people know. And what you know is what you base your own behavior on. So that certainly, I think a very, it's a very good point. I wonder, um, we talk a lot about substance use disorder and we tend to think of it as drug abuse, but it's also alcohol. Oh, alcohol right? is absolutely yes. a you know, and we we don't really. I don't think we really talk about that enough, or in the context of the overall recovery space. Alcohol use disorder is is real and it's serious. And so, how does MAT relate to that? Is that also used for alcohol use disorder? Yeah. So, so we have three medications also for alcohol use disorder that are FDA approved. So you're right. We, we do focus on the opiate use disorder because that's what kills somebody suddenly. But alcohol use disorder actually kills more people. Yes. It's just over a longer period of time. Yeah. So you're right. There's not as much focus. But we do have three medications. And interestingly enough, one of them is the same that we use for opiate use disorder. And that is the naltrexone or, or Vivitrol in its shot formation. It actually has been shown to be effective for both alcohol and opiate use disorder. There's also two others, a Camprosate or Camprol, which also helps reduce cravings and, and prevent relapse on alcohol. And then there's an interesting one called Antabuse. And so Antabuse is different than the other ones in that it doesn't necessarily reduce a person's craving, 
but it prevents them from using alcohol because it gives them really bad side effects yeah, if they do. That's the one I hate. Like, I, hate <laughs> yes. that, I, I was going to bring that up. I was going to ask you, what is the drug that someone takes that when they drink, they get violently ill? And, and again, I don't even know how that is an option because it goes back to, again, it's almost like punishing someone, right. like a shock collar. Mm-hmm. How does that work? That cannot prevent someone I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you, what is that drug called? <laughs> yes. and you, yeah, that, uh, yeah, that would be uh, an interesting choice to make. That's interesting. So tell us more. I'm also a nurse practitioner, so I'm a prescriber. And so I've, I've prescribed all of these medications. And so what they found with Anabuse is it's not super effective in because people don't want to take it because of the side effects. Right. So what you know, what I have seen it be effective for is those People that know they're going to be in a high-risk event for a short period of time. Let's say they're going on a cruise, and you know alcohol is everywhere on cruises. Or maybe they're going to a wedding, and they feel like they're going to be really tempted for that period of time. So they just take it for a short period of time, a couple days, and then they have that reassurance that even if they feel like they want to drink, they're not going to because otherwise they're going to be in the bathroom throwing up and very violently ill. So so that's kind of how that one typically is used. Or they take it on the cruise on day one, drink, get violently ill, and then throw <laughs> the pills overboard and go, never taking that again. <laughs> well, I guess, again, it it's all about finding the right medication, the right strategies, whether it's behavioral health strategies. Dr. Vernig, it's really about holistically looking at what is best served for that particular person? Absolutely. It's about the whole person. It's about their needs and all of the different domains that are impacted by their illness. You know, you brought up the issue of nature versus nurture. I think that's an important piece. Anytime we, we ask that question, the answer is usually both. It, it yeah. is a combination. And so we need to be able to address each of those components as a, a comprehensive plan. Now, there's unfortunately a lot of stigma when it comes to MAT. There are some people who believe that it's not really being in recovery because if you're using MAT, you know, that's not that that's not real recovery. You, you should be able to do it without. And really, you know, it's about what works for that individual person. You know, that's a medical decision that's between them and their prescriber to discuss. Is this something that could be a part of of my treatment program, even when it comes down to something like antabuse, which, you know, I, I kind of have some of the same uh, same thoughts about it, that it seems very punitive. It seems like something that uh, and it has been in the past used almost as a punishment for somebody because, you know, you've demonstrated that you can't use alcohol responsibly, so I'm going to tell you you have to take this, so you'll be punished if you do. But, uh, as as Dr. Gardner talked about, there are ways that people might choose to take that themselves and use it in a very specific way, because they know that's going to give them that additional motivation, that's going to give them that additional reason to not experience a, a return to use or a relapse in that high-risk situation. So, it's very individualized and we have to take into account all of those components and the whole person, you know, when we're considering and, and when, when and the individual themselves and their family are considering what's recovery going to look like for them. Right. So it's just another tool in the toolbox. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Plus, in, in all of my opinions, I always like to postscript or preface that <laughs> that I don't believe anything in this world, anything is a hundred percent. So even though I may strongly feel one way about something, I'm never under the illusion that I'm a hundred percent on point. Like I'm a hundred percent there. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not. And I'm also, I try to be intelligent enough to understand that I'm learning every day. 
and that if I'm still thinking exactly the way I'm thinking now, five years from now, I didn't get it. I'm not getting it. You should always be evolving. Your opinion should always be evolving because the more you learn about life, the more you learn, those things should change, you know, hopefully for the better. I mean, that's what, you know, we, we try to do, but I agree with you that there are some, look, I, I self-medicate through food and we've had this conversation. I do great on the weekends because my girl comes over on the weekends and she knows if I eat anything past seven o'clock, I don't get a good night's sleep. And when I open up the refrigerator, she goes, do you not want to sleep tonight? And I go, no, I'm closing the refrigerator. You know, so it's like the pill. It's like yeah. she's the pill on the weekend. <laughs> well, I think what's great about this conversation in this podcast series is that we're learning something every day. Every podcast, I learn something new. And I also know that people out there listening are learning and growing from this information. The other thing that we know is that this field is constantly evolving. What we knew 10 years ago is not what we know now. What we know 10 years from now is going to be different as well. And that's why we're here today, to give you the cutting edge, the latest, the most accurate information that we know from experts like you all. And from the personal experiences of people like you, Tony. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, you know, some of the lessons can be mind-blowing. I didn't truly understand what my son was going through until I was dealing with the pain of his death. And I realized that I would have done anything to stop that pain, that it becomes a selfish thing because the pain becomes so unbearable that the thought of waking up the next day feels like a punishment. And whatever I needed to do to wake up the next day, I would have done it. Not caring about the consequences of anyone around me or what that would do to hurt the people that loved me because the pain was greater than all of that. And again, repeating myself, music saved me. I'm sitting in this chair because the outlet for me was music. And all I can do is pray that wherever anyone is, whoever is feeling that type of pain, and people in active addiction feel it every single day, that I pray that they find an outlet that can give them a relief that they need and one that isn't going to take their life. Tony, we, we appreciate your authentic um, expressions of your experiences and what you've been through. And hopefully there are some folks out there that are listening right now to us, to all of us, and are getting some information that will help them towards that goal of recovery. Yeah. That's what Recovery 360 is all about. And we want to thank you, Dr. Peter Vernick, Vice President of Mental Health Services, and Dr. Ashley Garner, who is Corporate VP of Nursing with Recovery Centers of America. Dr. Vernick, if people want more information, where do they go? If you'd like more information about Recovery Centers of America, you can visit us online at rcarecovery360.com or call us at 844-25-RECOVERY. Tony, always a pleasure. Pleasure is always mine. We'll see you next time. Take care.